Thanks for the reading of God's Word from Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Hear now God's Word. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. Wolves love sheep for one reason. They're tasty. Jesus uses this metaphor to emphasize the serious danger that is posed to his people, to the church. The ravenous wolves are always lurking and waiting for an opportunity to seize their prey. And ravenous wolves are worse than regular wolves. A ravenous wolf especially likes to prey on unsuspecting little lambs. Jesus is saying that a false prophet will eat you alive. The big bad wolves are huffing and puffing. And so our question today is what is your house made of? The world is full of people who hate God and are on a mission to replace him with something Actually, with anything. Charles Darwin replaced the Creator with what he called natural selection and left us with nothing but purposeless materialism, molecules in motion headed nowhere but to ultimate annihilation. His followers found the second part of this equation to be untenable, so out of thin air they offered a blind belief in progress. They created their own hope out of nothing. Sigmund Freud realized that what who he called the great Darwin got rid of the creator and judge, for which he was very thankful, but he recognized that this left us all under an avalanche of guilt. His only sliver of hope was that perhaps, perhaps an enlightened few, if they were given enough power, might be able to control and direct the trashy masses of humanity to a more economical and organized and efficient society. However, he was very pessimistic that this would ever work. Karl Karl Marx brought a more, slightly more optimistic program to this newfound atheistic and materialistic world, a a problem, excuse me, a program that has, by the way, cost hundreds of millions of lives and brought misery to millions more. Thus, Jesus warned us, you will know them by their fruits. The philosophies of Darwinism, Freudianism, and Marxism while certainly not alone, there's a long list, have given us what has come to be called modernism, which dispensed with God and the spiritual realm 
redefining reality in material terms alone. For modern man, science became the final arbiter of truth. As a friend of mine used to say, if you can't turn it green in a test tube, it's not real. And so the scientists and the experts are and have become our modern saviors. These three false prophets, along with others, have opened the door for the current culture that we live in. And remember the warnings we looked at in previous sermons about not being, the warning about not being cheated by false philosophy or taking captive by every wind of doctrine or failing to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Another philosopher, Frederick Nietzsche, proposed the idea of what he called the superman who would courageously impose his will on this hopelessly bleak uh, reality. And this has given us what we now call the postmodern world, where each person is his own God and can define his own reality. As we will see, Marx's assumptions are compatible with postmodern thought categories, which allows these two views of the world to coexist. The material world managed by autonomous man, self-governed man. We can figure this out. We have, Sam, if I may, all the Legos. That's what the world is. It's just a bunch of Legos. And now we get to build whatever we want to out of that. You didn't know Sam had imbibed so deeply into false philosophy, our local uh, Lego animator. The warning of Jesus to beware of false prophets has gone unheeded by many in the church. Biblical truth has been adulterated with these very ideas. Compromises and accommodations have spread like leaven, and as a result, we witness our children being taken captive and devoured by ravenous wolves as they are cheated by this philosophy, these philosophies. And so this morning, I want to take a brief look at our third bad boy, Karl Marx, um, or perhaps I should say bad wolf. Like Darwin and Freud, Marx's original ideas have been debunked and largely abandoned, but their philosophical great-grandchildren have changed and adapted, or should we say evolved, to give us their new and improved versions of their philosophical namesakes. The modified forms of Karl Marx's ideas have been called cultural Marxism, something, by the way, the left denies if you Google cultural Marxism, not that Google would mess with anything, um, you get a whole list uh, pretty much exclusively saying there's no such thing. This is a, this is a fantasy of the far right and of Christians. They just made this up. But I think I'll demonstrate that that's not the case. Cultural Marxism has given us our current vocabulary of social justice, intersectionality, critical theory, and white privilege. It has also divided and subdivided us by race, class, gender, and sex. And so we have been left basically with a world of oppressors and victims. Now, acknowledgments. I have used many sources as I researched this sermon. If you'd like a list of those, 
let me know. Karl Heinrich Marx, born May 5, 1818, in Trier, Germany. Uh, he studied law and philosophy at the university, and he died in, on March 14, 1883, to give you a time reference. He was a German philosopher, economist, historian, sociologist, political theorist, journalist, and socialist revolutionary. Uh, he lived in exile with his wife and children in London for decades, where he continued to develop his thought in collaboration with German thinker Frederick Friedrich Engels. Now, remember, Marx also was a big fan of Darwin for the same reason Freud was. That is, he murdered God. And with God out of the way, Marx believed he could now show us the way forward by basically explaining how the world works, the mechanism, primarily through economics. He, bought, he thought that was the primary thing that drove human culture. And as with most philosophies, for Marx, certain philosophical questions were off-limits, and his number one off-limits question was the crucial one. What was the origin of man? And he wrote this. Who begot the first man and nature as a whole? I can only answer you. Your question is itself a product of abstraction. Now I say to you, give up your abstraction, and you will also give up your question. In other words, don't ask. His best-known titles were the 1948 pamphlet called The Communist Manifesto, and the three-volume Das Kapital. Marxism teaches that everyone who gets rich does so on the backs of the poor. The lower classes are always exploited by the upper classes, and so Marx wrote, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Redistribution of wealth, then, was central to the Marxist agenda. In fact, it is the patriotic thing to do. His critical theories about society, economics, and politics holds that human societies primarily develop or advance or evolve through class conflict. Classical Marxism, as presented by Marx then, uh, was fundamentally an economic system created as a response to capitalism. He believed that changes to the functioning of a society's economy would determine its culture and its politics. So he argued that capitalism is an exploitation of the masses and that history is a series of struggles that, led, that would lead to the inevitable fall of capitalism. Economic recessions and other problems of a capitalist economy give rise to struggles and discontent that will eventually, he says, inevitably provoke a revolution among the working classes. Capitalism will be overthrown. Social institutions will then be reconstructed out of the chaos and people will be freed from oppression. Never mind that, again, a few hundred million people will have to be killed to accomplish this. Those are just details. Marx had faith that the great upheaval of revolutionary violence 
would in the end reconcile historical, social, and cultural opposites. All this conflict out there, if we mix it up, if we throw it all up in the air, eventually each time it gets a little bit better. And then we have to do it again and again and again until eventually we arrive at utopia. The proletarian, that's a a word he uses, but just remember what we mean by that is the working class man, the average guy, by revolution will regenerate mankind by regenerating man's economic and social institutions. This is the primary message of Marxism. This is the very heart of Marx's religion of evolution. Marx wrote in 1850, Revolutions are the locomotives of history. So Marx's worldview is built on the notion that the world can be divided into two basic categories, evil oppressors and innocent victims. Do we have any of those in our culture? Oppressors exercise their power and dominion through establishing and maintaining a network of social institutions, structures, and systems that result in their being advantaged or privileged in a host of ways. Hence, things like so-called systematic racism or institutional gender bias are the result of this oppression. Marx limited his focus to the structures and systems that resulted in economic inequality between the classes. Among the people's oppressors, though, Marx said, stands religion. According to Karl Marx, religion serves as the opiate of the masses, allowing them to remain oppressed uh, by the exploitation of capitalism. So the oppressed masses must find it within themselves to overthrow religious systems as a prerequisite to overthrowing the political and economic classes and systems. So Marx thought this process would inevitably repeat itself again until finally a liberated society would emerge in a communist paradise. This is communist eschatology. This is their view of the future. Yeah, it doesn't look so good right now. In fact, it's pretty awful right now. But just bear with us. We shed a little more blood, maybe a lot more blood, and we have more time and more revolutions, then eventually things will get better. Trust me. Of course, you won't be here, right? You'll be annihilated and no longer exist. But you don't matter. It's not about individuals. It's about the group. It's about society. It's about the big picture. And so Marx, uh, again, thought this was inevitable. Economist Thomas Sowell pointed out that Marxian philosophy, which is taken from Hegel's view, said that the way to understand the world was not to see it as a collection of things, but as an evolving process. An acorn or a caterpillar could not be understood as a fixed and isolated thing without seeing that it was a transitory stage of an ongoing process that would eventually turn into an oak tree and the other into a butterfly. Social analogies to metamorphosis in nature abound in the writings of Marx and Engels, 
Acorns do not become butterflies, nor caterpillars become oak trees. Each unfolds according to its inner pattern. I hope you're seeing some connection here between how Darwin thought the biological world worked also. So continuing with Thomas Sowell, the distinction between the inner essence and the outer appearance is one which runs through Marxian philosophy and Marxian economics. Marx said, quote, Milton produced paradise lost for the same reason that a silkworm produces silk. It was an activity of his nature. In other words, there is an evolutionary predestination that progresses upward, and this progress is inevitable, and the process of progress requires upheaval by revolution. We want to start revolutions. If we get more revolutions going, if we can stir the pot more, then this process can be advanced faster. By the way, this is one of the reasons why the organization Black Lives Matter calls for revolution. Because they believe this. They are, they've openly stated that they are Marxist. And they have this objective. In this ever-evolving Marxism, there arose the need to explain why the inevitable revolution against capitalism envisioned by Karl Marx only occurred in very limited instances, and this will give rise to what is called cultural Marxism. Marx's focus on economics as the driver of of social evolution wasn't getting the job done. And so a different approach focused on using the culture as a mechanism for change or alleged progress, progressives. This cultural Marxism seeks the same outcome as classical Marxism, but it relies on different methods to accomplish these goals. In his book, The Red Trojan Horse, a concise analysis of cultural Marxism, Alistair Elder says this, The concepts of classical Marxism and Freudian psychoanalysis would form an intellectual foundation for what would become cultural Marxism. The primary developers of these ideas and concepts would be a small group of Marxists who would come to be known as the Frankfurt School. Now I'm going to pause here because I feel like as I'm in the middle of kind of laying this out in a very truncated and trying to you know, pack a lot in here, a flyover. You say, wait a minute, I thought this was church. We're supposed to be studying the Bible. Okay, we are. What we're doing, we've studied the Bible. We laid the groundwork in the first three sermons, and now we're actually applying the Bible. The Bible says it's the church's job to warn you and to equip you regarding things like this. That's part of the problem is the church has failed to be informed and equipped and aware. And when you're unaware and uninformed, you're vulnerable. So I don't want you tossed by every wind of doctrine. And believe me, we have hurricane force winds when it comes to these ideas all around us. And we're losing our children because of it. So an Italian Marxist named Antonio Gramsci, Gramsci, excuse me, 1892 to 1937, advocated an intellectual and cultural struggle wherein Marxists would increase class consciousness. That is, 
uh, awareness of you, you know, what class are you in. Um, teach their theories, crit- uh, critique history, and generally foster an anti-capitalist value system that counters cultural hegemony. Now, we're seeing more of Gramsci's ideas being worked out in our nation today, not so much those of Marx. So you had Marx originally, but now we have this adaptation, this new version, if you will. So Gramsci believed it was incumbent on his followers to, quote, enter into every civil, cultural, and political activity in every nation, patiently leavening them all as thoroughly as yeast leavens bread. To change the culture, Gramsci argued, quote, would require a long march through the institutions. To advance through a society's culture, it would have to advance through such avenues as the theater, literature, newspapers, magazines, radio, and the mass media, and we would add now to that social media. First and foremost, however, it would have to go through the education system. Some of you may wonder why we work so hard to have Christian schools and Christian education. This is why. It matters what we teach our kids. Now, they don't all get it. Amazingly, some can apparently go through all of that and walk away from it. Maybe we're not doing as good a job as we should. That's a topic for another day. But we're trying. To advance through a society's culture, it would have to then advance through these things. Like all cults, Marxism relied on capturing the youngest and the most impressionable minds first. You think you're sending your young people to college to learn how to make a living. But the reality is that the ravenous wolves of cultural Marxists plan on reorienting them to see a world of class struggle and to undermine what you've taught them. This is what the Babylonians did to their captured people. That's why it's called reorientation. We're going to turn you into orientals. We brought you here. We're going to change your culture. We're going to make you like us. Because if we make you like us, you'll stop fighting us. So cultural Marxists do it with your children, uh, to your children, with Darwinian, Freudian, and Marxist philosophies and other philosophies. And by the time they're through with them, you won't know who they are anymore. Daniel Ortega said of the Sandinista Revolution in Nicaragua, I saw this 30 years ago or so, after replacing 30,000 school teachers with loyalists, that he said, quote, the revolution will be completed in 30 years. So once Graminsky's long march was over, every single culture, cultural barrier to Marxism would have been methodically and surreptitiously removed. In Graminsky's view, the class consciousness could only be brought into being once the, um, once the long march had reached its culmination. Roger Kimball captures the tactic well in his book, The Long March, How the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s Changed America. Quote, Graminsky's enemy was not capitalism, it was Christianity. Gary North explains that Graminsky believed that, quote, the only way to achieve a proletarian revolution 
would be to break the faith of the masses of Western voters in Christianity and the moral systems derived from Christianity. Christianity, you know, used to be cultural. There was a time when Christians believed that Christianity was transformative, that it was salt and light. Graminsky understood this. Excuse me, I keep saying Graminsky. Uh, Gramsci, who developed the theory of cultural hegemony, or that's just another way of saying cultural dominance. According to one sociologist, cultural hegemony refers to domination or rule maintained through ideological and cultural means. It is usually achieved through social institutions which allow those in power to strongly influence the values, norms, ideas, expectations, worldviews, and behaviors of the rest of society. In America, our cultural hegemony is defined as being white, male, heterosexual, cisgender, uh, gender, which is a person whose gender identity corresponds with their biology, um, able-bodied, native-born Americans. Everybody who does not match these traits is classified as a minority and a victim of cultural hegemony. They are necessarily at war with those who are in power, the privileged ones who are oppressing everyone else by their very existence. Gramsci's cultural Marxism called not for an armed revolution, but a cultural revolution focused on overturning those in power. He determined that this is the best accomplished by controlling what he called the robes of society. These are the cultural influencers with power, such as judges, politicians, professors, and pastors. Gramsci believed that by empowering cultural Marxists in the institutions of the judiciary, government, schools, and churches, the masses could be mobilized to fight against the system. This would be accomplished by cultural influencers promising to advocate for various groups of people who are oppressed by the hegemony. Elsewhere, a group of German scholars known as the Frankfurt School developed another explanation for why Karl Marx's envisioned revolution never occurred on a global scale. They theorized that mass media had made people intellectually inactive and politically passive as they allowed mass-produced ideology and values to wash over them and to infiltrate their consciences, things like sitcoms. This chewing gum of the eyeballs. That, they said that's the problem. We've got to use the media to do more. We've got to infiltrate. One way of accomplishing this was to, re- to, uh, to reduce everything to discussions of race, class, gender, and sex. People should be encouraged to view themselves as members of subgroups rather than part of the collective whole. It's what we call or they call, identity politics. Nancy Piercy explains, quote, just as in classic Marxism, the proposed solution is to raise your consciousness, that is, to become aware of yourself as an oppressed group. You didn't know you were oppressed, did you? That's part of the problem. 
we've got to get you upset. We've got to get you outraged. We have to stir you up and point out how oppressed you really are. So if you're a woman, you're absolutely, by the fact that you're a woman, you're oppressed. And we could go down the list. If you're of a different race, if you're in any minority whatsoever, you are not being treated fairly. You're being mistreated, in fact. And so against the tendency of the news media to subdivide America into groups and to reduce everything to discussions focused on race, class, gender, and sex, this is evidence of the Frankfurt School's success in leveraging America's mass media. Likewise, the acceptance of concepts like cultural hegemony, systematic racism, and white privilege are evidence of the success that followers of Gramsci's ideology have had in America. Cultural Marxism is an agenda, not just an idea. It is a disruptive ideology with a detailed agenda for transforming America. Heard that phrase before? When Obama said and when Biden echoes that he intended to, quote, fundamentally change America, that is exactly what he had in mind. I know because I've listened to his former pastor who was eaten up with Marxist ideology. Until we can identify and define cultural Marxism, we're unable to recognize and confront it. Left unconfronted, it will utterly transform our country. It will replace our biblical moorings with anti-biblical ideology rooted in atheism. And much of that I probably should have put in past tense. Back to our text, and we'll close with this. Jesus said, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Scott David Allen observed throughout the 20th century, Marx's religious narrative, meta-narrative was put to the test First in Russia, under Lenin and Stalin, then in China, under Mao, and later in North Korea, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Cuba, and we could add now Venezuela. These vast social experiments were unmitigated disasters, producing prison states, gulags, and genocides that killed hundreds of millions of people. And yet, despite this miserable track record, Marxism remains with us. Although in a different guise, Marx's deadly theory incredibly has become the most influential worldview in the West. As communist states were beginning to collapse in the middle 20th century, a new generation of Marxist theorists arose in Europe to rescue the movement, sometimes referred to as neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism. So what's to account for the wild success of Marxism 2.0 in Western culture? While secularism severely undermined Christianity in Europe 
and the Americas, it couldn't provide a compelling religious alternative to fill the vacuum and meet the innate human need for morality and purpose. Ideological social justice, now this is important. I'm coming to to land the plane here, but this is why this is so critical for us. Ideological social justice is perhaps best understood as a postmodern, and when I say that, say godless. There is no God. There's just a material world in you. And so it's best understood as a postmodern religious alternative, a successor ideology to Christianity. Essayist Andrew Sullivan explains its appeal. For many, especially the young, discovering a new meaning for life is thrilling. Social justice ideology does everything a religion should. It offers an account of the whole that human life and society must be seen entirely as a function of social power structures in which various groups have spent all human existence oppressing other groups, and it provides a set of principles to resist and reverse this interlocking web of oppression. It's a cause. And so many people have decided that fighting for social justice is the new purpose for their lives. Revolution and class warfare have always been part of the Marxist core beliefs. As always, theology directs and controls our lives, personally and corporately. It is not a question of whether people are religious. It is only a matter of which theology a person embraces and serves. Everyone thinks something about God, even if they think there is no God, which leaves them to be God. They think something about man and law. God's creatures cannot escape this fundamental truth of their nature. They may worship false gods or they may worship the true God, but they will worship someone or something. Someone's theology controls culture. Every religion vies for power and control of culture. The question is, whose God will prevail? By their fruits, you will know them. Let's pray. Father, we are surrounded by many who would devour us and our children, awaken us to the danger, and equip us to resist. Moreover, grant us skill and wisdom to advance the gospel in a hostile world. May we make use of the sword of the Spirit, which is your word. And may the truth march through the world. And may Christ conquer all his and our enemies. And may our enemies become our friends. And may the knowledge of the Lord cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scriptures say, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. 
For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In G.K. Chesterton's novel, The Ball and the Cross, we see a debate between Professor Lucifer and Brother Michael who are guiding an airship through the sky over London. I preached on this a few years back, but I wanted to kind of draw this in with what we talked about today. They, they come close to crashing into the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral. And at the top of that cathedral, we see a cross sitting on a ball, just like the one that we have on our steeple, on our church, if you've noticed that. And so a dialogue begins, quote, the cross is on top of the ball, said Professor Lucifer. Uh, he said it simply. That's, that is surely wrong. The ball should be on top of the cross. The cross is a mere barbaric prop. The ball is perfection. The cross at its best is but the bitter tree of a man's history. The ball is the rounded, the ripe, the final fruit, and the fruit should be at the top of the tree, not at the bottom of it. Oh, said the monk, a wrinkle coming into his forehead, so you think that you think that in a rationalistic scheme of symbolism the ball should be on top of the cross? It sums up my whole allegory, said Professor Lucifer. Well, that's really very interesting, resumed Michael slowly, because I think in that case you would see a most singular effect, an effect that has generally been achieved by all those able and powerful systems which rationalism or the religion of the ball has produced to lead or teach mankind. You would see, I think, that thing happen which is always the ultimate embodiment and logical outcome of your logical scheme. What are you talking about, asked Lucifer. What would happen? It would mean it would fall down, said the monk, looking wistfully into the void. In the introduction to Chesterton's book, Martin Garner said that, quote, for Chesterton, the arms of the cross stretched into the universe and beyond the universe into infinite realms that transcend the world we know. The ball, in contrast, is finite and self-contained. And so are the kingdoms and government and nations of the world self-contained and self-authorizing? Is that what they are? Or is there a king over all these other kings and kingdoms? Is there a government over the other governments? Is there any accountability or ultimate authority? As the psalmist writes in Psalm 9, 17 through 20, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. And as we come to the Lord's table, it is a reminder of who we are before him and who he is, our ultimate authority, our Lord, our Savior. He has authority over us, thankfully. And we bow before him. So this is a time for us to remember that before we go out those doors into this self-contained world and take the gospel, the good news, the hope, a real savior to them.
Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen.